Today's episode is brought to you by Peregrine Book Company, located at 219 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. This beautiful boutique bookstore is in need of your business and support like all small businesses through this challenging time. Please head over to peregrinebookcompany.com to browse and purchase books online. While you're on their website, sign up for their weekly newsletter so you can get updates on their reopening plans. If the book says on our shelves now, you can actually pick it up the next business day or you can call 928-445-9000 and a bookseller will help you. Remember, peregrinebookcompany.com or 928-445-9000. Welcome to The Creative Convergence, an audible nexus of the creative arts. I'm your host, Candace Devine. Join me in conversation as we discuss the journey creatives take on their path to success. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have the most interesting and lovely guest, and her name is Miriam Issa, pop culture and political analyst, international public speaker, 300 million YouTube views, and speed-eating champ at her local Hooters. That's Miriam in a nutshell. Miriam has worked as a producer and bilingual correspondent on E! News, Telemundo, ESPN Deportes, Al Jazeera's Bound Sport, and across all of YouTube's clever media channels. Miriam is also an activist who has cultivated a strong following for her nonpartisan political and cultural commentary. She is on a mission to pierce echo chambers and heal divides. If you'd like to learn more about Miriam Lisa, please check our show notes for links to her social media accounts. Hi, welcome. It's so good to see you. For everybody listening, this is my my sweet, sweet friend, Miriam Issa. <laughs> and I haven't seen her in ages, and she was kind enough to join me on the podcast via Zoom. And um, if you wouldn't mind, let's start at the very, very beginning. Like, sure. where were you born? Who's your family? Where did you start your young baby years? My young baby years. I am the daughter of Cuban-Lebanese refugees. I was born in Miami. My mother was a politically persecuted refugee in Cuba who had to work in the labor fields in order to be granted the ability to leave her country for freedom. Uh, And my father was born in Cuba and his mother and grandmother were both uh, child wives who were married off at 13 to men about three times their age. So I come from a long line of fighters who have been championing for freedom. Yes. Uh, I was born in Miami lived below the poverty line for most of my childhood. And essentially what changed the course of my life was discovering the arts. So everyone else in the hood Girl, went in one direction this is and why I discovered the stage. This is why I have <laughs> stalked you to be on my podcast Aww. because I, with, and for people listening, the thing about Miriam and I, we actually met through performance, basically. That's I was right. singing and you were out and about and we were just like, I was your number one fan. You, <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> um, but she is a ball of joy and just lights up a room. And I was singing at the time at some, I think it was the Sofitel. And you came up to me and you were like, hi, I'm Miriam. Let's chat. And I think we were just instant <laughs> friends. And I've adored you every second of every day ever since. And But I, the thing about that is in those conversations through those kind of that time period, you would drop these beautiful like life bombs about yourself. And mm. and I was just like, 
you are the most interesting person I've ever met. And so I, I, I have. I've kind of stalked you to be on this podcast because I want you to share all of these pearls of incredibleness. So, Thank you. Born and raised in Miami. Grew up under the poverty line with two immigrant parents. Who Literally shared a full-size bed with my mother for the first 18 years of my life. Didn't Not only did not have my own room, did not have my own bed till I went to college and discovered what your own bed was. Right. And you and have a brother too, right? Yes. And I have a brother who also left Miami to become a news reporter. He was the guy seeking the truth for the people. And now he is a spokesperson for uh, one of the branches or one of the departments of the federal government. Amazing. So let's let's back into those years. So growing up, growing up in Miami, growing up, sharing a bed with your family, what part of Miami did you live in? Where did you go to school? What was your family scenario like? Were you guys artistic within the home? Like, tell me about that part of childhood. Sure. Well, it's interesting because my mother is very artistically inclined. Uh, She rolled with the artists in Cuba. So she was always this hippy-dippy artist. And then my brother is this incredibly brilliant, logical, rational person who I believe um, has been, uh, has not been diagnosed, but has Asperger. Um, so my mother was, her language was artistic and my brother's language was logic. And those two languages did not understand (laughs) each other. Right. And so I sort of forced myself to become bilingual in the two operating systems and become a bridge between the two. And I think that really helped sort of solidify my purpose in the world, because what I do now is, and I guess we'll get to that. Yeah, we're getting there, but continue, continue. You know, I, I sort of left entertainment news as a correspondent for E-News and, you know, a YouTuber that covered pop culture to become someone who really wanted to be an activist, but not an activist that only speaks to her bubble because then you're essentially just influencing the people that don't need your influence. You're preaching to the choir, in a you're sense. You're preaching to the choir. So right. the question is, how do you pierce echo chambers and how do you expand your audience so that not only your fans, but your opponents uh, hear you and you hear them? Right. So I am now trying to become fluent in the language of conservative and in the language of progressive and in the language of atheism and in the language of religion and be that person. But it all started with a little girl growing up in a home yeah. with a boy who had Asperger and a woman who only knew art. And and I love it so much. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> so can you talk me through a little bit about what that home environment looked like as school age, like five, six, seven, eight, like when you're, because you're also bilingual or are you trilingual? I'm bilingual. You're bilingual. My brother tried yeah. teaching me French last night. It did not work out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so growing up, going to school, public school, I would imagine, right. and and kind of navigating these waters of parents who, like you said, refugee in a right. new country for them, but the only country you know. What was your school years like? What were your outlets as a little person? Like, were you a make up stories and perform for your family person? Were you a write in my journal person? A million percent. Okay. Tell me. So so, um, when I was in the fourth grade, my art teacher, Mrs. Lennett, took my mom aside one day and she said, you have to get Miriam out of here. I went to this, you know, I grew up in in Hialeah, which is the Cuban epicenter of the United States. A hundred percent of the people, at least at the time, that lived in Hialeah were Cuban and you didn't speak English. I barely spoke English when I was eight years old, born and raised in the U.S. 
And my art teacher takes my mother aside and says, you need to take her out of here and uh, put her in an arts program in a magnet school. So we did that. So in the seventh grade, I started a theater program at a school in the in an African-American uh, neighborhood. And that was the most incredible cultural shock for me. Um, really? Was really? It was bullied? Yes. I was going to say, because you were primarily surrounded by a Latin I only influence. knew Cubans yeah. until the seventh grade. And all of a sudden I discovered African-Americans. So you weren't or, like, even necessarily immersed in white America, which I think oh. is a really interesting thing, right? Because you hear so often about immigrants being like, I've arrived and now I'm surrounded by white America. And That was not my experience at wow. all. Continue. Sure. I, I did not discover white America other than through television. I did not face-to-face discover white America till college. But right. So in the seventh grade, I start school in a theater program in an African-American neighborhood. And that was the first thing that sort of saved me because I was really bullied as a kid. Um, I was really bullied specifically in when I lived in the Cuban neighborhood because of all the poor people, we were the poorest. So (laughs) that's not funny, but the way you said it, it (laughs) (laughs) we all, you know, we punched down. Right. So I was the one essentially getting punched by the not as poor friends. When I transferred to the school, everybody wanted to sing and tap dance and be on stage and nobody was bullying anybody. So that's when I first came into my own and made friends. So despite the fact that I barely knew English and I grew up in the Cuban neighborhood and I look Lebanese, it was really African-Americans were my first friends. I love it. That's so. What a beautiful integration of not only people, but just ideas. The idea that like, totally. doesn't, it doesn't really matter what you look like or where you're from. Can you can you sing or dance? You know what I mean? Uh, we need to get back to that. Totally. I remember being in the eighth grade and my friends, Jatanya and Safandra, were like, Miriam, you know you have an accent, right? And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't have an accent. And my mom was there and they're, going, they're like, no girl, you have an accent. And I look at my mother and I was like, ma, do I have an accent? And she goes, no, honey, you don't have an accent. <laughs> Blind spots. <laughs> I love it. So oh, let's talk about that. Because you speak in such clear, I guess it would be English, like, uh, what's the term for the dialect of? Standard American? Standard American? Is that the appropriate? I don't know. I've been living in the Valley for a while, so, you know. <laughs> You're all, life happens when you live the in the Miami Valley. The <laughs> Miami got taken out, but I still have my hoop earrings. I still represent with yeah, my jewelry. Girl. <laughs> so junior high, you, you transfer to an art school, love it, thrive, grow. And then the art teacher there, or rather the theater teacher there, encouraged me to apply to New World School of the Arts, which was sort of the LaGuardia Art School of New York, but of the South. It was at the time one of the top 10 best public schools in the country. And if you wanted to leave the hood and you couldn't afford private school, then you had to go to New World. So I busted my butt and I went to a two-day audition at this school, and I made it in. And that's when I really experienced cultural diversity and artistic diversity. Some of the most notable performers in the U.S. now were studying with me then. In fact, the guy who wrote Moonlight, based on his life, uh, Terrell McCraney, who's become this huge playwright, uh, he was a year ahead of me. Wow. What did you audition with? a monologue, a dance performance, a song. And that's when they rejected me from musical theater. But <laughs> I have heard you sing. That's ridiculous. Well, that's why I've had to ask you for lessons because I sing so bad. If anyone can make miracles happen, it would be you. That is not true. That's what I said. I've heard you sing. That's ridiculous. Um, 
I'm I'm just blown away. I'm so I'm I have so many questions reeling through my mind, and I'm trying to keep on track with like the the moving it in in sequence. So the, you, the, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the, the the phases of my life sort of went hood to becoming an actor, right? To becoming a host, to becoming an activist. I would say those are the four main chapters of my life. Right. But what I would love to dissect in that section of becoming an actor. We'll say out of hood because <laughs> I and this is my Pollyanna like the grass is always green everywhere outlook is that I don't think where anybody's from is a negative thing. And I, and I think so often the term hood gets put in a negative light where it's like, I you know, who am I to say I'm a white person from Burbank, California, but I think it's so transformative and it's such a, a part of culturally the roots of who you become that you know it's as fun as it's to say it in jest or like or it was the hood or it's low income it's also so fundamentally shaping you know and because of those experiences you are the person you are which is allowing you to better the people we become in the future so yeah uh-huh. sure the hood I guess but I you know it's it's awesome to me. I, you know, you, you asked what the family dynamic was like. And I think when you come from much more wealth, a lot of parenting is outsourced to a nanny. Oh but yeah. When you don't have the money to do that. Yeah. Everything is very hands-on. So I grew up with, my father wasn't in the picture, but instead of him, I had my mother and my brother and my uncle and my grandmother in my face, hands-on every night, making every single meal, uh, involved in all of my business and my successes and my and my failures. So that's, I grew up very close to family. That's such an interesting point because I was from a middle class, maybe upper middle class, but my parents were both from, my dad was from a very, very, very small steel mill town. And even though they were doing quite well, like the idea of, like you said, outsourcing to a nanny, letting someone else bring up your, like was just not an option. And very, right. and because of that, and being an only child, because my parents couldn't afford more children, really, honestly, that was a conscious choice for them. My husband and I, I don't look at family, like no matter what we achieve or do or grow or, or create, it's like, no, I'm going to be the one making sure my child's homework is done. And I will be right. the one making sure my kid's knee is taped with a Band-Aid when he falls. Right. And so it's there's two things there at that issue. One is obviously a monetary thing worth right. looking at. But I do think that's just a additionally a, a cultural concept of family. Like I do think that in like my dad's Jewish in in a Jewish culture. I mean, and I know there are many examples against this, but you raise your kids. You're with your kids. Right. You are invested in who your children become. Right. You know, and I think in so many other cultural dynamics, that's just part of what it is, even before money and not money. You know, don't think twice about it. Yeah. Families used to live together. A woman get married. The husband moves in, you know, and then the grandkids come and then they take over the home when the grandparents go. You know what I mean? Like this is so interesting because in L.A., your biggest accomplishment is your career. But where we come from, your biggest accomplishment is your family. Your resume is your family. So it's almost like we're discussing what it's like to be money poor, but love rich or family rich. Right. It's such an interesting idea. And and where that gap between the two has been created, because I don't think it was always that way. Maybe it was. Maybe if you go back to the Rockefellers and the whomevers, they just had nannies raising their kids left and right and never knew them. I think so. I think, I think you might be right, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. And I think obviously through 
the Civil War and and slavery and, you know, rich, wealthy people having, you know, staff upon hand, upon, 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 just raising their mm-hmm. kids and doing their, you know, I you're right. And maybe I mean, how does that affect your empathy? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting way if to look at to look at no, the way we've not, evolved. Exactly. If you're not forming strong bonds, strong human connections from a very early age, and the only people that take care of you are paid to take care of you, so clearly they're not as invested as you as a mother would. Right. What does that do to your capacity for love when you are developing your capacity for love? I do wonder, though, it poses the juxtaposition for uber, super duper wealthy people who just don't have it. They're like, fine, let someone else raise my kid. It does make right. me wonder, which I just had this moment. Sorry, it's a, a brain spark. I think so much brought got brought up in that movie or in the book, The Help. You know, the mm-hmm. bonds that were created by so many people with secondary or paid for family learning their capability of loving from somebody that wasn't their mother, like that wasn't mm-hmm. somebody... I don't know. We went off on a whole tangent, but I love that. So interesting. So you get to high school and you've taken all this experience with you and you're in this performing arts school and you're surrounded by all these brilliant people. I am surrounded by excellence. How did you do? How did you feel? Incredibly insecure. Really? Yes. Even though you yourself had gotten yourself into this program. I tend to thrive when I can clearly outshine the competition. I get very psychologically intimidated when I'm in a room full of equals. And that's something that I've been battling my entire life. Wow. So in that environment, coming in freshman, you got the spot and you're like, I'm hot bananas. And then you walk (laughs) in and you're like, everybody's hot bananas. What did you do with that information? Hmm. I wish everybody could see you the way I see you right now. <laughs> she, uh, Miriam just gave me the most gorgeous, like, the thinker, like, off to the side. <laughs> it was amazing. Do you think that played a role in in how you developed in your confidence? Was that something you, you were aware of that young? Or was that something? I don't think I was very confident back then. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I took that information and I did what many teens would do. You internalize the information in its worst possible interpretation. Yeah. I'm the weak link. I'm exactly. the one that's not. Oh my God. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. I thought I was the weak link in class. And then I applied to go to a conservatory in New York for theater, not Juilliard. Uh, it was SUNY Purchase, though a really reputable program. I got in. And my entire Cuban family rents a van and they're like, we're going to take our little Miriam all the way to New York. So we drive all the way up the East Coast from Miami to SUNY Purchase, New York. We arrive at this program and my mother throws a Cuban fit. She starts bawling and she's like, I can't do it. I can't leave my daughter here. What is this school? It looks like a prison. Also, it's so cold. I don't understand the weather. (laughs) She's like, let's get back to tropical. (laughs) Totally. We need to go back to the equator. And the next thing I know, my entire Cuban family have repacked the van with my luggage and my mini fridge. And we are back in the van heading back south. And I'm in a daze. I'm like, what just happened? My brother calls me and he's like, 
hey, how's it going? You unpacking? And I said, actually, we're in Jersey now. I think we're heading back to Florida. I don't know what happened, but apparently I'm not going to college. And he screams at me and he says, I don't care what you do. It is Saturday right now. School starts Monday. You are going to be enrolled in a college on Monday. I don't care where, but you are starting school somewhere on Monday. So I quickly call my backup school, which was Florida State University. And I asked them, uh, hey, in 48 hours, can I be an incoming student? And they say, wait a minute, we thought you were enrolled. Oh my God. have a scholarship for you and a spot in the dorm. Again, Florida, they never get the paperwork right. <laughs> <laughs> through, ma- through many through many parts of life. <laughs> many times, many times. Uh, and so the next thing I know, I'm at Florida State University enrolled in their theater program. Did you ever ask your mom about that in hindsight? You're you're a grown-up now looking back. I mean, I am a big believer in life unfolds the way it's supposed to because we all have, you know, things we're supposed to experience in whatever ways that get presented that ultimately shape who we are. So, I, you know, right. I, I'm a no regrets person. I'm a you take the journey you take person. Um, but in hindsight, being an adult now, did you ever go like, mom, mom? Yeah. And what does she say? First, she laughed it off. And when I did not laugh back, she got that I was upset about that and she apologized for it. But ultimately I realized I can't control the lesson she should have learned in that moment. Right. I should have controlled the lesson, the opportunity I had there to advocate for my needs, to have a backbone and speak up for myself. Learning, I mean, those are the learning blocks, right? Like, this is why I love having these conversations, especially with people I know, because I learned so much about them that I didn't know before. Mm. And it's also valuable for the next person listening, because I, I think we're all faced with these moments where we feel like we have no control, but we do, you know? And and sometimes when you hear them from an outside perspective, you're like, well, I would have done this in that moment, you know? And it's really easy to say that. And then that moment appears in a different form for you. And then that's that moment of like, no, 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 uh, recognizing this is that moment. This is that moment right. when I stand up on my own two feet with my backbone very tall. Right. And I go, right. I need this, you know, which right. is really interesting. But you ended up at Florida. And how was that experience? I met white people. <laughs> <laughs> and were you like, wow. <laughs> wow. There were lots of Confederate flags. Yeah. Um and lots of non-Confederate yeah. flags, like lots, lots of kinds of people. Um, Were you I in a, a place in your life to ask those questions about those things for the first time? Or did no. you just kind of soak it all in and just keep your head looking? At the time, I think I was ignoring politics and I was ignoring the political tensions. I was ignoring the presidential election of 2000 um, because I grew up in such a politically charged environment where any discussion of politics always turned into a fight. I didn't know that you could have, I didn't know you could debate ideas in a way that was civil. And and frankly, I think this is a lesson the U.S. is still learning, right? That there's a way to have these conversations where we don't have to unfriend our family members from Facebook. Amen. I just went on a whole Facebook rant. I left Facebook, actually. I went on a whole rant about it. Not my music page, but my personal. And I just think it's very interesting to see in this current time, and again, this is another tangent, I think it's interesting to see families. That was the thing. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that got me in the gut. And it's, just to be on record, not my family, but observing people not just be upset with, but hate their own, like like denounce their own mothers and fathers for things that 
have developed over generational ideas, you know, mm -hmm. and the things that maybe their parents find important for reasons that happened pre-children that have set them up to think one way right. versus where we are. And and the evolution part, the, the lack of grace for mm -hmm. an old, because there's a generational gap happening as well as a political right. gap. Right. And seeing people have no grace for the previous journey based on right. things they have now. Oh, God. Amen. I was just like, how could you turn on somebody who has loved you for all of your misgivings your whole life right? because of one moment in time? Right. Instead of sitting down and saying, let's talk. Let's learn. Let me share and let me listen. And let me listen. It's amazing, let me right? Listen. So yeah. you weren't there yet at Florida. What were you doing? Well, I discovered freedom. I grew up so sheltered and having freedom. I was your quintessential teenager who was running wild and probably drinking too much and partying too much and not taking advantage of my education and I've never said this out. I've never said this publicly before. Um, so this would be the first conversation <laughs> where I reveal this, but I developed bulimia oh, wow. and it got pretty severe. And eventually I had to tell my mother and she had no money, but she rounded up every penny she could find. And she put me in, um, in an outpatient eating disorder clinic, which did not help because what they do, or at least what they did with me was they'd sit you down and they'd ask you questions about where you are broken. And then the session is over in 50 minutes. And then they send you off into the world fragile and you're an open wound. And you just spent the last 50 minutes talking about your childhood and your absent father, but it's not like they put you back together again, or it's not like they gave me tools. I was going to say they, the, the help to find your own yes. way back together. Right. No, it's more like they spend 50 minutes pricking at the, at, the, at the wounds where I had developed scar tissue. They open you back up, but they don't close it in any healed way. And so that actually exacerbated the symptoms of my bulimia. And I've also never revealed this publicly. So there you go. But um, I got kicked out of the BFA program at Florida State University because I couldn't focus. I wasn't being disciplined. And they sat me down and they said, we think the root of this is your eating disorder. You are losing your ability to be emotionally accessible on stage because what you are doing to your body and the effect it's having on your psyche um, is creating a wall between you and your emotions. And that was a huge wake up call wow. for me. Do you mind me asking you a couple of questions about that sure. section of your life? Um, sure. For anyone that sees your picture on this website and then goes and looks at your stunningly beautiful face and your incredible Thank body. You. Um, where do you think, because you're naturally slender, was bulimia something you could control? What was the, where, where did the idea of that first become something you wanted to hold on to? Sure. Well, I think first it became compulsive eating. Okay. And I had spent several years, I'd always been slender and I'd yeah. spent several years competing in beauty pageants and being successful in that kind of thing. 
And then I became a very compulsive eater. I wasn't having sex. I wasn't doing drugs, but I was drinking and eating. And that is what gave me pleasure in life. I didn't have, um, I couldn't afford, I didn't have the money to afford other kinds of pleasure, uh, cultural experiences, travel experiences. And I, at the time, was not a sex positive person. So I wasn't experiencing sexual pleasure. So literally I, I concentrated all of joy into what I could fit on a plate. And then I started to gain weight. And then the new me with the new body had to reconcile the old brain who was used to looking a certain way and receiving a certain kind of attention for that. And I couldn't let go of the expectation, the beauty expectations of the old body, nor could I let go of my new source of, of pleasure. Happiness. Yeah. Happiness. So bulimia became the solution. So you, it was a both and like, you're like, oh, it's it's fine. I'll do both. I can, I can have that, that, you know, intimate experience of pleasure with my partying and with my eating, but I can just get rid of it. So I still look like the old person that everybody praised. Right. Except that it didn't work. Right. (laughs) So when, when, how did you, I mean, obviously the school brought it to your attention. Did you hit any point where (sighs) you yourself looked in the mirror and went, I can't, I don't know how I'm going to keep this up. Yeah. There was a day that I, I vomited and something red came out and it didn't look like food. And I thought, did I just vomit blood? Yeah. And so I went to the counselor at Florida State University and I told this gentleman, hi, I'm a student here and I am dealing with this eating disorder issue. And that freaking counselor had the audacity to tell me, it's okay. When you throw up, you lose a lot of potassium. So you can continue to be bulimic. Just eat a banana when you're done. Oh, oh my gosh. So I didn't know where to go. I still haven't closed my mouth. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. At any point, did you confide in it? Where was, where was your mom and your brother in this time of your life? I mean, obviously. They were really concerned for me. Yeah. Were yeah. they were they aware of what was happening? They were until I started to lie and say that I was getting better because um, I couldn't deal with the guilt of how I was destroying them. Right. That's yeah. You're compound. You're putting a brick on top of a brick on top of a brick of of stuff. Right. You're, you're built. You're like your your mentors in your acting school were right. You've you're building this wall day by day right. by compounding deep down rooted stuff on top of stuff right then the lies to fix the stuff and then the trying wow so when you got kicked out what was your was that i was devastated yeah i've I've, did you beg like no please would you i mean or did you just go i get it i mean where were you at with that response i think i got it i really did i got it i deserve to be kicked out I was not in denial of my failure in the program. I was not showing up with the same level of excellence that my peers were. And frankly, it's because I didn't think I was capable of it. I thought I was innately untalented and broken. And uh, what's the expression? Um, When you're faking it, when you fake... um, What... Make it till you make it. <laughs> I don't know. Kind of no. when it's that thing that people say when they're when they're oh, pretending to have their shit together like, as a CEO, like just phoning it in. 
uh, I forget what it's called, but I think so many people around you are just phoning it in, or, or at least they're pretending that they deserve to be in the room. Right. And I was never a good pretender. So it was more like I'd walk into the room and be like, no, I, I understand I was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think what resolved my eating issues, it was not the therapist, it was not the counselor, and it was not the outpatient clinic. It was not the love from my family. I got a boyfriend and he loved me and he loved my body. And all of a sudden I was experiencing not just pleasure in a superficial way, but in a deep emotional way. Right. And I just got out of my head. I no longer needed the plate of food and the compulsive eating. Yeah. I, I experienced a new level of, of joy and vulnerability. And probably experiencing just honest care for you. I think sometimes mm. when you get honest care, like when somebody's like, I just love you how you are, you right. know, that honest nurture which, you know, going back to childhood, you know, is supposed to come from our families, which it sounds like your mom was in spades and your brother in spades, but a male figure, if your dad right. wasn't around, a male That's figure it. who emotionally fills a place of nurture, you know. Right. Um, where did you go next? You get kicked out. You go, oh, my right. God. You have a moment, but you're now in, invested in someone who loves you as you are. What right. was your next? I mean, I feel like that would be from an outside perspective, quite a a pile of reckoning to look at, right? I mean, you're right. like, here I am. Now what? Yeah. What'd you do next? Well, I graduated Florida State from there with a bachelor's in theater, but not the BFA. Got it. And I moved to New York because I wanted to know what it was like to live in New York before I moved to LA. LA was always the end goal. Um, and I hated New York. <laughs> Really quickly, because I think <laughs> sure. that's really interesting. When you said you got kicked out of your BFA, my assumption was automatically you were just done with school. And I don't know if anybody listening would have that same assumption. How was it to kind of sit in it and get your degree but not be in the program? It was very challenging for my ego. Yeah, to finish. I feel like that would be quite a hurdle. To finish alongside, but not, not right next to. Right. Right. Yeah. But that was the beginning of the awakening um, and then I moved to New York yeah. and I hated it. I hated the weather. I was not mature enough to enjoy the wonderful things that New York has to offer, the food scene, the culture scene, uh, the arts. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't a consumer of the best of New York. I felt like I was a victim of the worst of New York. <laughs> You're all New yeah. York chewed me up and spit me out. <laughs> I feel that way about Greece. Every time I've been to Greece, I feel like they chew me up and spit me out. I'm like, really? <laughs> It's the most beautiful place. And I'm always like, why don't I know what I'm doing? Why am I not in flow? Yeah, here? why am I not in flow? Um, <laughs> I, I totally get that. So how long did you stay in New York before you were like, nah? One year. That's a solid. And I was you like, see everything through the seasons. Sure. Yeah. 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 Summer was like a month long. And <laughs> and uh, so I decided I wanted to move to L.A. So I moved to Los Angeles on February 8th, 2006, 1.30 p.m. I have that inscribed on my favorite pen because to me, it was the beginning of the rest of my life. Really? Yeah. You had decided even before you got on that plane, you're like, I'm going, this is where I'm going, and my life is now starting. Yes. How did your mom feel about that? Because that's still far away. 
Yeah, it felt more far away for her, for sure. It was really difficult for the Cuban family. They're not used to this. I'm the black sheep of the family for having left. Um, But I arrived to Los Angeles and it was love at first sight. Like everything worked. Everything was right. Um, Yeah, and that's when I started my career as an actor. Um, Were you still in a relationship at this time? Was that... I was still in my relationship with the gentleman who helped me get over my eating disorder. And about six months after moving to Los Angeles, I found out that he had been cheating on me essentially the entire time that we had been together. I know, wanted to punch him in the face. Um, (laughs) It was so traumatic. I felt so betrayed and I thought, oh, of course. I fooled myself into thinking the last few years that I was worthy of more, but this was always going to be my fate. This is who I am. I am inherently broken. So it sort of reinforced all those voices in my head. And, okay, do you remember a show in the late 90s called A Different World? It was a spinoff of The Cosby Show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so my entire childhood had had a huge crush on the lead actor on the show, Kadeem Hardison, who played Dwayne Wayne with the flip-up glasses. Totally. Totally. So here I am, fresh off my breakup. I am angry and I am I am looking for something fun. You've got some and Cuban rage. In, yes, the Cuban <laughs> rage. And, and the Lebanese rage. And the Lebanese rage. Terrible combination. <laughs> and this is back in the day when it was early enough in the days of Facebook that you could find celebrities on Facebook. And I decided to look up Kadeem Hardison and there he was. And I write him a message and I was like, hey, I like you. I've liked you since 1997. Let's go out on a date. And he writes me back and he's like, who the fuck are you, bitch? Like, please, (laughs) you are a perfect stranger. So we spent a week bantering on Facebook. And then a week later, he's like, all right, I feel like I can trust you. You no longer seem crazy. Let's go to a movie together. So we go to a movie together I'm meeting my childhood celebrity crush, Dwayne Wayne, from a different world with the flip of glasses. I'm laughing so hard and right now because this is just such a quintessential <laughs> L.A. story right now, but yes, with yes. the beauty of Facebook in the mix. Like, this is yes. insane. Okay, continue. Yes, we sneak beer into the movie theater. And so afterwards, we sit down and get to know each other. And I ask him about his life. And he tells me, you know, after the show finished... I went through some serious depression. I did not leave my mansion for like seven years. I didn't know who I was without the show. The show was my identity. It was his first acting gig was the lead on a network sitcom. And yeah, and you develop your, there's a saying that, um, and I, you know, it's funny, I look back at people, but there's a saying that it's very hard to mature past the moment you acquire fame because Mm. it's this pinnacle part of your life that is becomes an identity outside of the per- you spent your whole life being the person to get there and then your life becomes this idea versus the person right and so once it ends there's this gap in maturity where you stopped growing into the person you you're meant to become because you get railroaded with this idea of something this character, which is very pretty babe, interesting, babe. I think you should you should have a whole episode on just fame. That's <laughs> fascinating. I mean, you're going to start to think of it with all the friends and the people that I know. You know, um, you'll you'll start to see. It's interesting because in my life, I've experienced that. I, I've noticed people kind of hit a pause button in that mm. time frame, and then if that thing ends or transitions, there's this whole aftermath of learning right. who you are again. 
everybody today's episode is brought to you by the raven cafe located at 142 north cortez street in historic downtown prescott arizona i love this place i eat there all the time and let me tell you why the raven cafe features a full all organic espresso bar and a wide variety of craft beers and wines their innovative menu is created with a focus on organic ingredients many of which come from local sources. So head on over there. Enjoy a relaxing and comfortable environment decorated with rotating art shows by local and regional visual artists. And on the weekends, a lineup of the best in up-and-coming local music. You don't want to miss out on the Raven Cafe. It's absolutely one of my favorite spots in town. So head on over to ravencafe.com and order online or stop by to catch a happy hour on their beautiful rooftop patio. Continue. Right. Please continue. He said something similar. He said, once you knew you lose your anonymity, you never get that back. You become a different person. That is not a thing you ever get back. And he lost it. And so the girl that played Freddie on the show was his real life love, Cree Summer. And Cree Summer spent years telling him, trying to get him out of his depression and uh, encouraging him to take something called Landmark Forum, which you've probably heard of. It's, oh, it's kind of like the self-empowerment weekend thing. Um, it was called Est back in the 70s. It was super intense. Um, and it still is incredibly intense. And a little, it sometimes can be perceived as a little culty for sure, but it's also really effective. It's like 10 years of therapy in a weekend. Got it. And, um, and he said, one day I decided to take this freaking course she kept asking me to do for years. She just asked at the right time and I took the course and it changed my life. And after he said that, I went home and en enlisted in the same course and I took it two months later and it completely changed my life and it completely changed my story about myself. That is when my life began. I realized whatever story I had that I was damaged goods, that my father left me, that I you know, failed out of the BFA program. These were just stories. They were not who I was. I, I wake up every day as a blank slate. Every day I get to be the writer and the architect of who I want to be that day. 100%. And I'm so excited to hear you say that because as we've been talking about the journey, my continual reoccurring question in my mind is like when you were like, I was the broken one. I was the, and I'm like, when did that story get put in your brain? Mm. Because it's not the story you wrote. It's just the one you chose to believe at that time. You know, I've never asked myself that. When did it get put in my brain? But think about it. When you are the offspring of other broken people who've led broken lives, when your grandmother and great-grandmother were child brides and when your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather were absent in their marriages for their children and when your mother is a refugee whose father left her mother, etc., you feel that you are the product of the ingredients that came before you. And if this is what came before you, who see, else and, do you become? Right. And what's so interesting is all I see is strength and survival. You know what mm. I mean? Like, and again, Pollyanna over here, eternal mm. optimist. But all I see is woman after woman after woman who did more, became more, went above the situation at mm. hand, raised the children to be the next level of success as far as, and I use quotes on that, but I mean like 
your mom being a refugee coming to the so-called promised land from a place of mm-hmm. not, you know. Um, right. It's interesting because I, I agree with you. It's like, how do you not become the history that brought you here? But at the same time, I look at it like you're just the 2.0, the 3.0, the 4.0, the mm. upgrade, the upgrade, the upgrade to the idea of more. Mm. Thank so you. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. So I that's when I decided to stop playing small and I was going to go, let me think. Okay. So then in that same era where I'm trying to decide who am I going to be for the world? Yeah. My father dies and I had not spoken to my father in years. So I'm coming out of an audition for the Oprah Winfrey Network and I'm in the car so upset because I know I bombed this audition when I get a phone call from my cousin who's there to tell me, your father's in the hospital. He's got three days to live. I know you and him haven't spoken in over a decade. Just want to give you that information and you do with that information what you want. Fair. And my immediate reaction is, I'm a, I'm a bro cocktail waitress. I'm not going to scrounge up all my money to go see a man who wasn't there for me. I call my mother and God bless my mother who was an angel. My mother was my father's biggest victim financially, physically, emotionally. And my mother tells me, well, honey, I'll support anything you want to do, but I think you should make the decision that you will be proud of the day that you are on your deathbed. She's so wise. She's so wise. And when you frame it that way, you must elevate. I mean, you must grow bigger. I agree. So So? I took the next flight to Miami. (laughs) Yeah. And I walk into the hospital room, and the man that I remembered as this big, strong Lebanese man is a shadow of himself. He is skin and bones and frail and fragile and semi conscious, and he has so many tubes going up his nose and through his mouth. He can't speak, and we just lock eyes. And I think that's when he knew he's going to die because I showed up. Yeah. And any resentment I had, a lifetime worth of resentment and stories vanished immediately. And all I saw before me was a fragile man that I wanted to comfort. So I spent three days holding my father's hand and just telling him who I am, who I became. And um, at one point he asks me, am I going to die? And I said, I don't know, dad. You have lived your whole life on your terms. And there were so many moments where you probably should have died and you didn't. And I believe you will live death on your terms as well. Are you scared? And he said, no. And I saw this bravery in him. And I thought, well, if I am a product of the people before me, then I just discovered I have bravery in me too. So this whole time, the family, my father's family thought that my father was holding on to to life because he was waiting for his youngest son, the only one he'd really cared about, the only one he raised of his five children. But what I am noticing is my father doesn't stop staring at me. For three days, his eyes are locked on mine. Didn't matter how many children were in the room. And his favorite son finally arrives and my father is still locked on me. And I think, well, maybe I'm just in his eye line um, and he can't move his face. So I turn around to the other side of the bed to be as far away from his eye line as possible. And my father takes all of his strength and moves his body 90 degrees to face his daughter. And that's when I realized, you know, he is trying to study me and take me in and absorb as much of me as he can before he dies. And it was the greatest gift I've ever received. That's incredible. That's incredible. 
You know, it's it's life is uh, the great teacher, isn't it? I mean, mm. at the end of the day, mortality is the thing that none mm. of us will. The escape. weight of those three days were equal to, if not more valuable to me than the 30 years before it where he had not been present. I received everything I needed in those three days. And I was holding his hand when he took his last breath. And the reason why that is significant is because when my mother became pregnant with me and she found out she was having a girl and she told my dad, guess what? It's a girl. My father yells at her and he starts cursing her out saying, how dare you? You screwed this up for me. It was supposed to be a man. It was going to be a boy and a baseball player. And you're giving me an effing girl. And they get into this ridiculous fight and my mom's crying and he's screaming. And the only thing that manages to calm my father down is that at one point, my mother looks at my father and she says, what do you know? If of, if of all of your children, it is the girl I carry in my womb that will be holding your hand when you take your last breath. Isn't that wild? That is beyond, in my opinion. That is so prophetically beyond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there's, that's very much the reason he did not take his eyes off of you. I mean, nothing like facing prophecy and being like, and not only to see this strong, independent, beautiful, smart, and vulnerable woman willing to come and sit there for three days. That's an incredible, I mean, that's, that's, that's when life is bigger than all of us combined. You know, those, those, those hairs of moments are, are bigger than, than the story. You know what I mean? Then the story. Right. That's incredible. So he passes and you come home to LA. And I come back to LA and I decided I wanted to become a therapist. And I can see that. I mean, I could see the interest there. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, going back to growing up with these two operating systems in the household and wanting to learn how to be their bridge. So I think, okay, this is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a therapist. And uh, in order to apply to be a therapist, you have to accrue hours volunteering as a counselor. So I applied for all of these different um, counseling volunteer positions. And of all the ones that I got accepted, I figured the one that scared me the most was working at a hospice. So I went directly to that one because brave, right? So I start volunteering at a hospice and, and I'm in the middle of applying to school. And my mentor takes me aside one day, this older Persian man that I'm very close to. And he says, Miriam, I think you're going to be a great therapist, but I also want to remind you that you are amazing in huge groups. And I think it would be a waste for you to spend your career having one-on-ones with people when you're actually amazing in a room full of thousands of people. That's and I incredible. think you should use that muscle there. Because yeah. I was just going to ask you when, when you had this kind of pivot and, and, these kind of life aha moments and you're like, you know what, this is something that I might really invest myself into. My natural reaction was all the things in the arts that you've developed over your whole life, all this interest, did it just dissipate at this point? Or was it just something that got put aside because of the the moment at hand? Like where where was your heart and your mind 
to the idea of auditioning and the arts and being around people and doing scenes and like had you just kind of gone it's not important anymore or did you go maybe there's a greater calling what was your psyche about that you know how in these podcasts it's great to interview people who've done a lot of things right so that you can learn what success looks like or how to arrive, how to reverse engineer success. I think it's also really important to learn from people who've made mistakes. And one of the mistakes that I have made and that I made then was thinking that I am past my prime and I have aged out of the oh, opportunity to God. be an actor. <laughs> I, girl, I feel you on that one. I We talk about ageism a lot on this podcast and just in the sense of like, who's deciding for us? Right, right. Again, you are the writer of your story. Yeah. And here's the thing, and, and I'm so curious to know if you relate to this. I tend to perceive myself as older than I am only because my only frame of reference at any given day, I am the oldest I've ever been. I say that every day. <laughs> really? I'm the oldest I've ever been. <laughs> I'm the oldest I've ever been. So yeah. your only frame of reference is to compare yourself to who you are now, to who you've been thus far. Right. So you always just feel old because wherever you are in life, you're always the oldest you've ever been. Totally. So I always just assume, man, I'm so old. I've probably passed my window of opportunity for X or Y or Z. Only to realize five years later, 10 years later, a year later, what the heck was I thought thinking about? I totally. was a baby. Totally. I so could not, I could not is, agree with you more. I will yeah. say that within an entertainment industry, there's, whether it's spoken or unspoken, I started being told I was too old at 22, 20, you know? And I remember hearing those words like, well, you know, most people, they start at like 16 and you just got out of college. You're kind of already past it. Like people are already big by now. And I was just like, yeah. wait. What? I thought my whole life was spent on go to college to learn your craft. Like that was the whole right, point. Like right. and I'm past it. I just got right. free to start my life, you know. So right. I did have that element told to me um that put a lot of that voice in my head, but mm -hmm. at the same time I could not agree with you more. Every day I'm like I'm the oldest I've ever been. So I feel right. as though and then I look at something and just to add a little start of that in acting and in Singing, it's like the projects you work on don't come out for mm. a year or two years. So you're mm -hmm. perpetually semi-living in the past. Oh, that's fascinating. You know what I mean? So it's like you work on recording music or writing music or learning a script or doing whatever, and it gets filmed here. But you're not doing any of your promo and all your stuff till probably. And so now you're a year older right. than from where the time frame of the art conceptualization is. So there's that element too, where you're like, I feel older than the person I was then, but now it's right. time to be the person I was person then. Person that I was then. But right. I'm older now. So there's a whole lot in there. But yes, it's this idea that it's like not even real. We, we let it mm -hmm. be real. Mm -hmm. You're just who you are, period. Mm -hmm. And you just, yeah. And the numbers thing, I, I laugh, I read this and I don't, I haven't fact checked it, but I've read that, you know, um, in some of the most in – in like the poorest, most aborigine or tribal environments where people are still just growing up in the land and they don't know the day they were born by a calendar year mm. and they don't know their exact age, 
they tend to live youthfully much longer Mm. because they're living on how they feel versus what they're told. How old do you feel? Exactly. Um, No, really, how old do you feel? (laughs) God, well, it depends on the day. (laughs) But like, (laughs) I perpetually feel like I'm still like 29, 30. Yeah, same. I just like, that was just like, I, I, I don't, I don't want to be like 21, 22. I'm not that person. No, we made terrible mistakes then. (laughs) Or just, you know, I just don't want to live in that way of the person who lived in that way then. But like, I, yeah, I haven't evolved past much like getting married. Like, I'm just like, I'm just still there mentally. I just happen to have a five-year-old now. So the person that helped me become a host, um, so my mentor. Please continue. We do he this. gives me, <laughs> no, no, no. It, it ties into everything we're saying. So my mentor tells me, I think you shouldn't limit yourself to 50 patients a week. I think you should think 50,000 yeah. lives. And, and then meanwhile, I have this friend, Tatiana, who's this beautiful seven foot tall Armenian, gorgeous woman in Los Angeles who's a host. And she invites me to audition for a YouTube channel, an up and coming YouTube channel that was seeking a Latina host. And I go and I get the job. And that woman who changed my life and became a very close friend of mine for many years, a month ago passed away from breast cancer in her mid-30s. And I was the one that would get the Botox. And she was the one who was like, no, it's fine. And then then she passed away at such a tender age. Uh, She was diagnosed three, uh, she was diagnosed days before giving birth to her first child and died a year after the child was born. And I am now changing my relationship to age and to aging. It is such a privilege to grow wrinkles. I don't know if I can step down from the vanity that much, but I completely agree with you. (laughs) I'm working on it. I'm working on it. (laughs) Sure. I guess what I mean is I'd rather deal with the vanity than not have anything to deal with. Amen. Amen. And and it's true. Every day we live is a privilege. And I think Mm -hmm. we forget that so quickly and so easily, which brings us back to the discussion of, of like letting go of people you love over a political disagreement. Totally. When tomorrow could not be promised. Why? Is that how you want to waste your last day? Not, you know, loving somebody instead of sitting down and talking with somebody? Well, the problem is, I think what people think on each side of that argument is, I clearly don't share the most fundamental values with this other person. And I think the blind spot in there is that you actually do. You are both seeking what feels safe. You are both seeking for your tribe to be safe and to be valued. That just looks really differently to each of you. Right. That's such a valid way and beautiful way to say it. Because there is common ground always. It's just a matter of what that common ground is rooted in. Right. And... um, Oh, I love that you just said that. That's wonderful. Back to your mentor and to this position, because I do want to keep the journey moving. And I'm terrible at that. I I dislodge us all over the place. But um, so you get this hosting job. So I get this hosting job and it completely transforms my life. Right. She passes away, but leaves you this gift, kind of. Right. Um, Well, she was, she was. Th- that was years ago, yeah. um, and she only just passed away. So we were in the journey together. Good. Okay. I kind of become a public person. I start to become recognized everywhere. Like 
like Israel and Qatar and Colombia and Peru. It was fascinating. Um, Yeah. So I become a YouTuber and I'm doing all these funny videos on YouTube. And it's funny, the girl that originally had bulimia is now one of the stars on a YouTube series called Cheat Day, which is all about essentially skinny girls eating copious amounts of food in front of a camera. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, finally, someone's paying me to do the thing I always wanted to do. (laughs) I love it. And and did that particular job take you all over the place? Did it give you, did it create more confidence for you? Did it in any way highlight other insecurities? How did that jump into kind of being recognized shift you? It helped me grow and become more polished in a myriad of ways. But this one voice in my head started to grow louder and louder of something that was missing. And that was that I was creating content that was entertaining the masses just as my country was really beginning to feel like it was falling apart. And how dare I, the daughter of refugees, allow the democracy that my family risked their lives for, how dare I not be a part of the solution or of the conversation about that democracy? How dare I create more Kool-Aid for young people to fall asleep instead of creating the conversations for young people to get involved. Oh, I love you for that. I think it's I think it's really important that we all look at the way we involve ourselves in community and it starts small and it mm-hmm. gets to big platforms, but um again I read another uh, not fact checked, but another statistic they were saying like kids in in Japan or maybe it was China. They asked them what they want to be when they grow up and they're enthralled with space travel and they're like astronauts. And they asked a bunch of American children, what do you want to be? And majority were like YouTube stars. Yep. Yep. And there's something to be said about that. Yes. And that, in my opinion, solely, is a problem. <laughs> you yep. Know? So when you are self-aware enough to go, listen, I have this great job and there's so many awesome perks and it's great. But if I look below the surface, am I doing as much as I could be doing mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. all kinds of platforms mm-hmm. to be taking that generation of people and encouraging them to think beyond this? Yeah. And I appreciate you for that. Thank you. Well, look, you and me and everyone listening to this podcast right now, we have all inherited a bunch of rights that other people fought for and won with their blood and their sweat and their tears and often their lives. If you are listening to this and you are in an interracial marriage, someone fought for that right for you. If you own land, if you can drive, if you can vote, express, if you can vote, <laughs> if you can hate on Trump or love on Trump, the fact that you can express those opinions, other people fought for that. The buck should not stop at us. We don't get to say, ah, thank you, 1,000 generations before me. I'm done now. Yeah. Amen. 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 So... In the as as this voice is growing louder in my head of who am I? What am I doing for the world and and for posterity for the generations after me? E News finds me. You shoot me an email and they're like, "We've been watching your stuff and we want you to come in. We're considering hiring you as a as a host and as a producer of your own content." So um, I go in and I get the job, and I accept the job despite the fact that the network represented the complete opposite in a way of what I was seeking to do. But I thought it would be great on my resume to have worked at E. 
So my first day at E was November 7th, 2016, which means that my second day at E was the day of the elections, if I'm getting my dates right. All right. So my second day at E, I go home thinking I'm about to see the first woman president. And I, so that means that my third day at E, my life had changed (laughs) and the life of every American. Yeah. And I walk into the network holding a box of tissue. And I remember that um, they essentially sat down the talent and they said, all right, we're going to stay out of this conversation. If you want to talk about what Hillary was wearing or what Trump was wearing, you can keep it at that. We will not opine on the conversation occurring in the country right now. And I thought, fair and not for me. Yeah. I was going to say there's, I have, I look at two sides to that. There's a part of me that goes, I appreciate them staying in their lane for what they have designed totally. their bubble to be. I right. I mean, I, I respect when any entity is like, this is where our boundaries are. We know right. what we're comfortable with and we know what our audience comes to us to see. You're absolutely right. But I also so respect you going, fair, just not for me. Right. And that's that's another thing that's leaving right now that I've noticed is that people are forgetting to allow those decisions to be made and say, it's okay that that's your decision. I understand it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't Mm -hmm. work for me. But instead of me like blacklisting you and saying you're the problem, it's me going, I respect your desire to be what you are. Mm-hmm. I want to be broader and deeper. So I am going to go take control of my power to do that. Because mm-hmm. sometimes we have to live and let live. You know what I mean? Totally. And I respect that a lot. So then you, how quickly did you say thanks? I was under no contract. So I finished my contract. I played the role I was meant to play there. And then as soon as I was out, I realized, Miriam, you got to stop. Can I curse on this? Yeah, sure. Go for it. You got to stop fucking around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And ever since then, I've been, I guess you could say, an activist and a public speaker. And um, I've been speaking at political conferences around the globe. And it's really interesting because I went to this conference in Sydney, Australia, filled with white male conservatives and libertarians. And I walked in. I looked so different. And I had my hoop earrings on. And my last name is Arabic. And these are like really white conservative males. And they're hugely academic and there were Nobel Prize winners and nominees in there. And I'm this girl, this registered Democrat from California. And I show up and I do this speech about the power of empathy and the power of listening and the fact that you are not the story you are telling that you are just a libertarian or you are just a Republican or just a a conservative. You are complex, my friend. You are a mosaic of identities. You are actually a mosaic of contradictions. And by the way, so am I. So when you look at me and you just think this liberal chick from California, you are oversimplifying who I am and robbing yourself of the opportunity to influence me because you think I am beyond your scope of influence and the same vice versa. Amen. Amen. I love that you have that dialogue in front of all kinds of people because I think that is the way we get to not necessarily bridging the gap, but at least reaching across and going, hey, I've got some lumber and you've right. got some lumber. And maybe together, if we oh, put our lumber down, we create the bridge 
And uh, maybe we all walk across it in different directions. But while doing so, we remember that it took both sides to get the bridge built. You know what I mean? So beautiful. <laughs> and it's Absolutely. so important because it, that empathy, that word, that empathy is needed in mm-hmm. my opinion, every in the arts. And I think it, I, I do think that the arts fuels empathy, but I think sometimes the actual message of empathy gets lost. Totally. If that makes sense. Art makes you feel, communication makes you feel. Going to acting. But who school, are you feeling, feeling for? for? Right. So, you know, that's the part that keeps getting dropped out of the discussion. Are you right. only feeling that for people who feel just like you? Right. Because Or how many times as a liberal have you, or, you know, as a progressive or whatever, have you been in a room that so strongly advocates for diversity and then you realize that the kind of diversity that room is seeking is the visual diversity, the racial diversity, but not necessarily ideological diversity. So essentially what you wanted was the veneer of diversity, but you don't actually want your ideas to be challenged. And yeah. I think that's a blind spot that we have. I agree. And I love that term. It is a blind spot where everybody's driving, but they're just, they're checking the mirrors and the windows, but they're not doing the double check for the, the mm. one that's just hiding in the shadows over there. Totally. Oh my gosh. I adore you, Miriam. I adore you. This um, has been amazing. Also, I want to go to Burning Man with you. I've never been. I want to go. <laughs> I'm Next it on year, if there is a vaccine, I will take you under my wing. I am the queen of the playa. I will bring you myself. The re- and by the way, whoever's listening, the only reason I ever went to Burning Man for the first time seven years ago and that I've been going every year ever since was because I was taking a voice lesson from this beautiful woman. <laughs> and I told her, oh, my, my boyfriend's going to go to Burning Man. And he asked me that I should probably not go my, his first year so that he could like learn the ropes. And you stopped playing the piano and you looked at me and you were like, woman, are you insane? <laughs> You are going to let your man frolic on the playa with all those beautiful models walking around naked? Well, you better get your ass on the playa. And then I did. And then I became the queen of the playa. I, just to be fair, the way I remember it is that I was like, I wasn't as worried about the stunningly, you know, half-naked people all over the place. I'm projecting. I'm projecting. Well, no, because you're stunningly beautiful. And if you were half-naked, no one would look elsewhere anyway. But I think it was more about the, why does he get to go have this experience and you, who gets to dictate that? You go have your own experience. Mm. You can meet up in the middle somewhere. And if you don't meet up at all, that's fine. But the playa is big enough. I think it had something to do with that. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> I, I was just like, right. I was just like, mm. and also probably because I was like, there's naked people everywhere. But um, <laughs> I think I was more insulted about the idea that he got to go learn the ropes and you didn't. And that right. was not cool with me. Right. But you it, both get to transform. Yeah, yeah. Everybody yeah. gets to have the experience they make. Um, is, is that person still a person in your life? Yes. He's still a really close friend. We broke up (laughs) right after the Trump election. I I like to blame everything on Trump as I think it was Trump. (laughs) You're like, who needs COVID? He broke up my relationship. (laughs) (laughs) But we're still really good friends. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and, and then thus being so the fact that it may not have ended up in the same regard, you did go to the playa and look how your life has changed. You go back many times and things. Thank you. Um, may I ask you just a couple questions I like to ask all my guests. Sure. With this remarkable journey you have had so far and all the twists and turns and the turning around in a van with your family and the ups and the downs and the sections, as you put it. What would you tell your younger self? It's not too late. 
Stop seeking short-term pleasure. Strategize for your long-term plan. Like trim the fat off of your day. If you spend four hours a day on TikTok and two hours on FaceTime, how could you be changing the world if you gave yourself an extra six hours a day? Um, and take risks and travel from a much younger age. I remember um, a few years ago, before I become a very seasoned traveler, I was I was driving with my brother through the hills of Malibu, and my brother was talking to a friend of his, and they were talking about Laos. And I very ignorantly said, is Laos a country or is it a city? What is Laos? And he looks at me and he just goes, Mary, quit your job and go travel. I need you to see the world so that you never ask a stupid question like that ever again. (laughs) I started crying and then I did quit my job and take a flight to Laos. And then from Laos, I went to Cambodia. And then from Southeast Asia, I went to South America. And those, those moments are transformational. And talk about having been once the 18-year-old girl who couldn't advocate for herself at SUNY Purchase in New York and didn't know how to say, no, mom, I want to stay. You build that muscle by exercising it. And when you are alone in the world, you need that muscle. I I could not agree with you more. That's incredible, incredible advice to give your younger self and to give young people and to anyone, really. I always say traveling is the best education there is because human to human, we accomplish so much more. Governments might argue, leaderships might argue, politicians might argue. Human to human is a very different thing. Human to human. You gave me chills. Very different thing. Um, What, how, I'm trying to think how I want to phrase this for you. The meaning of success, that word specifically, how has that, if it has, changed for you over this journey that you've taken thus far? What does it mean to you now? What did it mean before? Has it changed? Right. Well, I guess when you're poor, you grow up thinking that success is being wealthy and being having an impressive LinkedIn page, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you move to LA and you meet incredibly accomplished and impressive people who are spiritually bankrupt, who are empty inside, who have toxic relationships, who are toxic themselves. And I think that's when you realize success is being able, it's being able to look in the mirror and be really happy with who you are, with who you're becoming, whatever that means to you. And it's probably, again, like a little mosaic. It's a, it's a mix. It's a cocktail of all of those things to make just enough money to be okay, to see enough of the world, to understand people that don't look like you, who are not a part of your tribe. Yeah. I love it. I love it. What um, what do you tell yourself now? What's your mantra now when you when you're looking in the mirror and and if you're in a place where life is uncertain, our futures are uncertain. You know, it's it's one thing to tell your younger self here are the things to look. What do you wake up in the morning and tell yourself on those days that you're just like, what am I doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I'm not Jewish, but I celebrated Rosh Hashanah recently <laughs> because any excuse to celebrate the end of this year. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year. 
And uh, when I left the Rosh Hashanah, I did something I'd never done before. I wrote myself a thank you card that I have up. And what I told myself in it was, I'm very proud of you. You've been through a lot this year. You've been through um, a career breakup. You've been through a romantic breakup. You lost a friend to cancer. You often feel like you're losing your country to racial division and political division. Um, And to some extent, that fissure is also occurring in my own family. I have a family with like five Biden voters and everyone else is a Trump supporter. And there's very little civil conversation that happens between these two groups. And I wrote myself a note that was simply, you're doing a great job. Mm, We all need to tell ourselves that more. Right. Like I could have said some slogan of like, no, spend less time on TikTok or eat better or, you know, uh, whatever it is, work harder. But God damn it. Can we just (laughs) slow down for a moment and stop with all the slogans and so focused on constantly moving the space forward? Can we take a moment to be still and just say you're doing a good job? Right. Yeah. And I think giving yourself, like we mentioned it earlier, giving yourself that grace to just go, hey, good job. Right. That's enough. Just focus on and, that for a minute. Good job. And you know, and you know what? How are we supposed to have humanity for other people when we can't offer it to ourselves first? I think about when we're little and your teacher puts that like good work sticker on your paper. Mm. And it's such a small little gesture. But I remember being a kid and if your paper came back with the sticker on it, some sticker, mm-hmm. it was just enough to make you proud of yourself in a way mm-hmm. that if you didn't get the sticker, you know what I right. mean? Right. Sometimes we need to just put that sticker on and go, it's enough. You're doing a good job. Yeah, you're doing good. Yeah. yeah. Miriam Misa, I adore you. Where can our listeners find you and follow you and be engaged in your activism and your career and your glory and your wonderfulness? By the way, I adore you too. <laughs> you are wonderful. You're magical. You're such a star. You're so incredibly talented. And then also your your heart is as massive as your voice. Like neither needs a <laughs> microphone because Thank they're you. so big. So Thank it's been you. such an honor to have this conversation with you. And also amazing questions. You're such a Good listener. Oh, thank you. I felt like I interrupted you a ton, but I just, I get so excited. I felt like I interrupted you. you. Oh, I just did it. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I love talking to you. So it's like my brain's always going and I I have to zip my lips more. But no, me too. (laughs) Where, where can everybody find you and follow you and stalk you as much as I do? Sure. Well, you can find me on Instagram at Miriam underscore Isa. So M I R I A M underscore I S A. You can find me on Twitter at Miriam Isa without the underscore. Um, you can find me on TikTok at Miriam Isa, find me on Facebook and find me on YouTube for some more videos that you might agree with or you might not agree with, but either way, they'll make you laugh and think. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love you. Thank you I so much. You. You're the best. And You're come beautiful. visit me if you want a road trip. I know. Come up to Arizona, the high desert. Right? We're in the north, northern Arizona. Pine trees, lakes, hiking, clean air. Big starry skies. It's absolutely you know, beautiful. Come visit. Cali is getting very expensive and also it's on fire, <laughs> literally and figuratively. So I might. Girl, just get in your car. You don't even have to give me notice. Just say I'm on my way. <laughs> You're so sweet. Your room thank is you, ready love. and waiting. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I hope I talk to you soon and not just on podcasts. You will. You will. We'll do that. Okay. Thank you. Sounds good. Mwah. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for being my guest. This was great. <laughs> Bye, love. Bye. Today's episode is brought to you by the Natural History Institute. 
Located at 126 North Marina Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona, the Natural History Institute is a nonprofit which seeks to cultivate love and understanding of the natural world. They have programs for naturalists of all stripes, newcomer, novice, and veteran. All are welcome who are looking to deepen their relationship with the natural world. Please check out their website at naturalhistoryinstitute.org or head to their Natural History YouTube channel. Thank you for listening to The Creative Convergence, coming to you from Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Are you a professional in the arts and would like to share your story with us? Or a company that would like to advertise with us? Shoot us an email at contact at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Help support the arts by becoming a Raven Productions member. Get your perk card and be the first to know about all of our upcoming promotions, events, and online programming. Your membership will directly support the arts programs in our schools. Sign up today at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Until next time, be safe and enjoy the journey.